Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the American Medical Society for Sports Medicine Sports Medcast podcast in collaboration with the BJSM. I am Caitlin Mooney, a primary care sports medicine physician at UT Health San Antonio, and tonight I will be your host. Today, we will be discussing childhood obesity. Childhood obesity, of course, is a prevalent problem, but I think something that is not commonly addressed in doctor's appointments due to a variety of things. Our guest for the day will be Dusty Narducci, a primary care sports medicine physician and team physician for the University of South Florida and St. Leo's University. Thank you so much for having me today, Caitlin. I've been a passionate member of the AMSSM for the majority of my training and career, so participating in this podcast is sincerely an honor. I'm very close to obtaining something called my SEDS, which stands for Certified Eating Disorder Specialist, so topics such as this are near and dear to my heart. So this is a topic that isn't often discussed in sports medicine. So why should we, as sports medicine physicians and doctors, care about childhood obesity? So most clinicians would agree that obesity is the most prevalent nutritional disorder affecting the youth of the United States. The National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey has shown that the prevalence of obesity continues to increase in all pediatric age groups, in both sexes, and in various ethnic and racial groups. So we are looking at approximately 33% of the U.S. population under the age of 20 being considered either obese or overweight, and sadly, this number continues to rise. These numbers make this topic a major public health concern, if not the absolute largest one. I agree. It is certainly a common problem I see in the office. How are we studying childhood obesity? So overall, we are very limited by the lack of prospective continuous analysis that explores the relationships between young life environment and risk of adult obesity. On a positive note, in 2016, the National Institutes of Health launched something called the ECHO program, which stands for Environmental Influences on Child Health Outcomes. This is the first and only program that investigates how early life environmental factors affect obesity risks. As you mentioned, there are some ongoing longitudinal studies, but are there any emerging data about young life, environment, and risk? Do you know when we expect results from this study? So, Caitlin, the ECHO program includes over 50,000 children from diverse backgrounds. Visiting the ECHO website will provide endless information to clinicians, but overall the program emphasizes pre-, peri-, and postnatal outcomes, upper and lower airway health, and development obesity, in addition to development of cognition, emotion, and behavior in children. So it, it looks at a lot. In 2015, a study called the Family Life Project joined the ECHO initiative. Researchers are hopeful that this collaboration will assist in clarifying how child emotional, physical, and academic development in rural areas are affected by environmental elements. Honestly, I don't know when results from this research can be expected, but preparing for the data collection and intervention started in 2016, and it's lasted all the way to 2018. The collection of prospective data began in 2019, but I'm excited to see what we end up getting from these awesome studies. That is exciting. Um, For some background, what is the definition of obesity? So let me start by saying no single definition of obesity in childhood and adolescence has been universally accepted, making this 
obviously a difficult topic. So direct measuring of body fat is not available in most clinical practice environments. So the body mass index, also known as the BMI, has become the standard measurement for children. For those between 2 and 20 years of age, the CDC uses the following weight categories. Don't expect everyone to remember this, but overweight, BMI between 85th and 95th percentile. Obesity is above the 95th percentile for BMI. And severe obesity is a BMI above 120% of the 95th percentile values or a BMI above 35. And what are BMI Z-scores I have heard this term used? I'm glad you asked that. Body mass index Z-scores, also called BMI standard deviation scores, are measures of relative weight adjusted for child age and sex. So the BMI Z-score is useful in extremes of weight. In particular, to monitor changes in a patient with a BMI maybe more than the 99th percentile or less than the first percentile. Yes, that does seem useful. As I know, the standard growth charts make it hard to monitor weight loss or gain in the population you mentioned. Are there online calculators for BMIZ? Seems like it would be useful for EMRs to be able to calculate this factor. So I most frequently use the online BMI Z-scores from the Baylor College of Medicine or the Centers of Disease Control BMI percentile calculator for children and teens. That's also a really good one. You can find them in the show notes. Out of curiosity, I have seen a lot of people in medicine state that BMI should not be used. What is your feeling regarding this? So the USPSTF recommends using the body mass index measurement to screen for obesity, as do most other organizations and institutions. So the BMI, of course, has its flaws. Children who are shorter or those that have a relatively high muscle mass may have an overestimated BMI and vice versa. We also see this in athletes all the time. So individuals with a BMI above 30 are almost always obese based on other standards. On the other hand, individuals with a BMI less than 30 are often misclassified. So when interpreting BMI, I just recommend that everyone is very cautious in clinical and research settings. Would taping like the military does be helpful? How much can we depend on the BMI? The current military policy requires that body fat be maintained at levels below 36% in females and below 28% in males. So it is assumed that individuals who are of normal BMI based on height and weight standards also meet body fat requirements. So if an individual is above normal BMI based on height and weight standards, then they must undergo something called the tape test. The military tape test is a circumference measurement around the waist and the neck. These measurements are placed in an algorithm chart to produce a percentage of body fat. So the tape test accounts for the size of an individual, but does not consider muscle. So very similar problem to BMI. I have been told stories of military personnel maxing out and kicking butt on their fitness test, but failing the tape test. In these situations, I have heard that the military resort to something called hydrostatic testing, which is an underwater weighing kind of system. This is thought to be one of the most reliable methods of body fat testing. As common as obesity is, do we know what causes childhood obesity? Caitlin, what a loaded question. So it's really not that simple. More than 90% of cases have been considered idiopathic with only less than 10% being completely related to genetic or hormonal causes. I like to think of the possible causes for the development of childhood obesity in the following categories. So environment genetics, metabolism, and both individual and family lifestyle, and of course, nutrition behaviors. 
So when a child has a lifestyle with a lot of sedentary activity and little physical activity, the risk of obesity rises. And a diet with large portion sizes, poor food choices, high calorie beverages, and less scheduled family meals also contribute. Wow, it seems like the same culprits are tied to a lot of diseases. It's interesting to see more and more diseases be tied to sleep as well. So tell me more about the genetic ties to obesity. So I couldn't agree more. The importance of sleep is absolutely underestimated. In regards to genetics and childhood obesity, let's begin with the prenatal environment. So we are now learning that nutritional and environmental factors during gestation, a concept called metabolic programming or epigenetics, may influence the development of childhood obesity. Dusty, could you give us a brief description of epigenetics? I was hoping you weren't going to ask that, but in molecular biology, the science of epigenetics is based on heritable phenotype changes that do not involve DNA sequence. Let's go back to medical school for a second. So DNA gives the instructions of various functional proteins to be produced inside the cell. Epigenetics affects how genes are read by the cell and subsequently whether the cells should produce relevant proteins. Further explanation would truly require a podcast in itself. What else about genetics and obesity in children? So genetics has been thought to contribute to up to 85% of the variation in childhood obesity. But remember, less than 10% of cases are directly related to hormonal and genetic causes. We have successfully identified single gene defects related to obesity, but research has yet to isolate exact polymorphisms. But we're on the right track. So although rare secondary causes of obesity, such as medications, endocrine disorders, and hypothalamic lesions are rare, they really should be considered. And what are some of the comorbidities associated with obesity in childhood and adolescence that we should know about? Obese children are three times more likely to have hypertension, metabolic syndrome, which includes abdominal obesity, hyperglycemia, dyslipidemia, and hypertension is a significant concern. Also, an increased risk of death from all causes and from coronary artery disease, which has been consistently observed in males but not females, although one recent study did suggest that both genders were at risk for coronary artery disease in the future. So up to 25% of obese children have an increased risk for developing type 2 diabetes, and as a result, insulin resistance, a condition called acanthosis nigricans, is possible. So this can develop as well as other dermatological conditions such as intertrigo or hydroadenitis. Since we are sports docs, how about musculoskeletal implications of obesity? Aside from an increased prevalence of fractures and diffuse musculoskeletal pain, slip capital femoral epiphysis and tibia vera, also known as Blount disease, can affect the obese child. Are there psychological and other comorbidities we should be aware of with obesity? As said before, the list is endless when it comes to the negative psychological effects that obesity has on our youth. Prejudice and discrimination, poor self-esteem, anxiety, depression, relationship dysfunction, and disordered eating are just a few of the psychological consequences of childhood obesity. Polycystic ovarian syndrome and non-alcoholic fatty liver disease are also conditions strongly associated with obesity. And don't forget, 10% of obese children have clinically significant sleep apnea. Those are some serious psychological effects. What is the overall prognosis of uh, childhood obesity? Childhood, and especially adolescent obesity, is predictive of adult obesity. 
older onset and a higher degree of obesity during childhood has been associated with continued obesity in adulthood. The prognosis of developing obesity later in life is definitely worse in children who are obese before the age of five and in those under 10 with obese parents. The good news, Caitlin, is that obese children who achieved a normal BMI by adulthood were found to have similar risk of comorbidities to individuals who were never obese. Well, that is an interesting fact that I did not know and does give us some good news that we can have some interventions. So it seems like our goal should be to intervene early and try to help our patients reach a normal BMI by adulthood. What is your approach to a visit with the obese child? Do you get referrals for obesity or are you just seeing patients for musculoskeletal complaints and then addressing their obesity? So I'd say a bit of both. I have a low threshold to counsel on childhood obesity, but also see referred patients. I begin by obtaining a detailed history of the child's medical conditions. The medical history includes details about the medications they might be on that could be causing weight gain, such as glucocorticoids, as well as psychotropic and anti-epileptic drugs. A child's developmental history is very important since a delay may indicate an underlying chromosomal or genetic cause for the obesity. And what about physical exam? So measuring the rate of linear growth and the timing of puberty can help you to distinguish among the differential causes of childhood obesity. So I usually start here. Most children with lifestyle-induced obesity enter puberty at the appropriate age and grow at a normal or excessive rate. Sometimes the obese child can mature faster and have bone growth that is almost advanced compared to their peers with normal body weight. When growth rate is diminished or pubertal development deviates from the norm, other causes of obesity, such as hypothyroidism, excessive cortisol, growth hormone deficiency, diabetes, fatty liver, PCOS, and genetic syndromes should all be considered. I always measure blood pressure and make sure to use an appropriate pediatric-sized cuff. What about lab assessments? We have not reached universal consensus on which laboratory tests to perform in children and adolescents with obesity. I often begin with a fasting lipid profile, fasting blood glucose, or hemoglobin A1C, and sometimes AST and ALT in those children who have a BMI between the 85th and 95th percentile. Regardless, though, if a child has a BMI above the 95th percentile, all of those labs should be drawn. Sometimes serum leptin, reproductive hormones, and electrolytes can be useful. Also, I'll throw in thyroid, adrenal, and growth hormone function tests. And then when you are concerned for genetic syndromes, maybe some karyotyping would be appropriate. And how about screening? So there's a lot of controversy due to the psychological effects and low predictive value of screening for obesity in children. The USPSTF has found the harms of screening for childhood and adolescent obesity as small to none. But in 2011, the U.S. National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute expert panel did recommend universal screening between 9 and 11 years of age and again between 17 and 21 years of age. The USPSDF concluded that with moderate certainty that there is a net benefit of screening for obesity in children and adolescents who are over the age of 6. Also, the USPSTF recommends offering or referring these children for comprehensive, intensive behavioral interventions to promote improvements in weight status. So results, though, have only provided a moderate benefit. To date, there is no evidence found regarding appropriate screening intervals for obesity in children and adolescents. 
And what about social history for these patients? So as clinicians, we must assess a child's physical activity in a very, very detailed manner. I often include questions about the child's time spent in unstructured play, organized sports, school recess, and physical education, as well as screen time with television, video games, mobile phones, and tablets. Oh, and of course, pandemics certainly do not help this situation. Family dynamics are important. Understanding how the family eats and functions physically is crucial. Also, don't forget to collect details related to depression, peer relationships, sleep practices, and disordered eating habits. Thanks so much for sharing your knowledge with us, Dusty Narducci. I'd like to thank you for taking the time for this discussion and to thank the AMSSM as well for giving us this platform for discussing this topic. Although I hate to stop here, Please tune in for part two where we further discuss childhood obesity.